Amen. Well, let me pray briefly as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning again. This morning, we officially begin our summer sermon series. In the last several summers, we've chosen a book of the Bible as a summer focus. Rather than something thematic, we've chosen either an overview of a biblical book or a word-for-word walkthrough of a book of the Bible. And I love that we do this because it gets us away from our tendency to be broad and shallow in our biblical reading, and it instead invites us to plunge deeper. It's also helpful, helpful for us in a season where some of us tend to be more mobile, moving around maybe a little bit more. It's, easily to follow, it's easy to follow along and to catch up on Sundays where we may have missed. And this year it has an added value for us. Uh, as many of us are still staying at home, a, a communal deep dive into a text can be a binding agent for us. A way to, to join together around God's word intentionally, even as we're unable to, to join together fully in person. So this year we selected Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church. There are two of them in the biblical canon, and our study of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians will take us all the way until September. Now why do we choose 1st and 2nd Thessalonians? Well, it's the perfect length for us to be able to preach through these texts fully, word for word. It's also a timely text for us in this season. For me, the The Thessalonian texts, they sparkle with life. When I read them, I kind of visualize this this bonfire that is burning up fuel with every verse and is warming up the entire room. There is a reason for this. Thessalonica was a, a city at the crossroad, literally and figuratively, and the Thessalonian church was experiencing this vital ministry as they tried to hold things together in a world that seemed to be changing around them. Sound familiar to anybody? Paul writes warmly to this church and addresses many of the same things that might be on our minds and hearts. How do we make sense of suffering? What does Christian character look like? What does a life of faith mean for things like sexual ethics or love of neighbor? And when is Jesus coming back and what's that going to look like? Paul answers these questions and many more, and he gives us a reason to be hopeful. But not a a chest-thumping, loud, brash hope. Rather, a confident, humble hope, the kind of hope that Jesus himself modeled. And for this reason, the name of this series is Humble Hope. These letters encourage us to choose a humble hope as we navigate the world today. As a way to help us uh, follow along and to bring us together around God's word, we have produced a booklet for you. This is a simple journal with uh, text on both for both of these letters, as well as a blank page on each for your notes. You can use this booklet for your own personal devotions throughout the summer, or maybe it's a space for you to take sermon notes. It's our hope that we can gather around these beautiful and challenging texts as a church and maybe pick up some new devotional practices along the way. These are going to be available starting today for pickup at church. If you drive by the front door, there's some benches out in front, and you'll see a bin where these booklets are available 
for you and you can come grab them anytime, as many as you need for you and your family. If you'd like us to pop one in the mail for you, we'd be happy to do that or even deliver it to your home. Just let us know. We would love to get a journal into your hands. If you're a child, a a junior higher, a high schooler, college-age student, this is a great way for you to do devotions through the summer as well. So I hope that you will come and grab one and maybe take one for a friend too. We're going to start on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 next Sunday. So you've got a week uh, to get these journals in your hand and to come and join along. So next week, we're going to provide a context for the Thessalonian church as we dig into those early verses. But this week, I want to look back in the book of Acts to explain how Paul ended up in Thessalonica in the first place. The book of Acts tells of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, particularly the second half of that book. The author of the letter of Thessalonians is Paul, both of those letters, and he's also the author of most of the letters in the New Testament. So we see a common pattern in Paul's journey. Ablaze with zeal for Jesus, Paul travels through Asia Minor, what is a modern-day Turkey, to strategic central locations, cities, economic centers, political centers, commerce centers. And he would go to these places, he would find their synagogue, and he would preach and teach. He would find Jewish communities, maybe any Christians or Christ followers who were around, and then he would spend several weeks or months planting a new church or strengthening an existing church. He had a pattern, and he followed it in Perga and Philia and Salamis and Tarsus and Troas. At the beginning of his second missionary journey, which we read about in Acts chapter 16, his strategy seemed to be working beautifully. And by Acts chapter 17, Paul is in the city of Thessalonica, and he's building relationships, and he's, and he's planting this church, and he's strengthening it. But here's the thing. Paul never planned to go to Thessalonica. It seems clear that Paul was poised to continue actually down the west coast of Turkey to key cities of Pergamum and Smyrna and most of all the port city of Ephesus. But as he prepared to to head down that west coast, something happens. And this is our word, our scripture for today from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Hear God's word. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia, pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision... We immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul has a strategy, right? And it's working great for him, but here that strategy is upset. He can't go south into the towns of Asia Minor, can't go north into the region of Bithynia. Why? The text tells us that the Spirit would not let him. Now, they clearly had a plan, a strategy. We see this because it's a very organized ministry plan, every stop on this missionary journey. But here we have a sense that there's another force at work for Paul. He and the apostles with him are being led by the Spirit. We don't know how the Spirit forbade them to preach in Asia or how the the Spirit kept them out of that Bithynian region, but clearly they were obedient to however the Spirit prompted them. 
So they traveled to the port town of Troas. And then Paul had this vision. In the vision was a man, a Macedonian man, who pleads with Paul for them to come and help them. And they were faithful to that vision. They go to Macedonia. They bring the gospel to Europe for the very first time. Macedonia is the northern coast of the Aegean Sea. It's in modern-day Greece. And it's here that Paul plants and strengthens the vital churches of Philippi and Thessalonica. It wasn't on the itinerary, but because of the vision that Paul received and his willingness to follow it, we have these letters that we're going to study throughout the summer. It's because of his faithfulness. So let me ask a question to you this morning. How do you make decisions? How do you make decisions? How do you decide simple things like, what am I going to do with my free time today? Or what am I going to eat? Or how am I going to spend my money? And then how do you make bigger decisions in your life? How long am I going to stay in my current job? What college am I going to go to? Should, should we buy this house? Should I serve on this board? Should I send my kids to this school or that school? Should I choose comfort or risk? I ask these questions because our text forces us to ask these questions. But also because the question is timely. I mean, I know that many of you listening today are facing difficult decisions in your life. Financial decisions, work decisions, family decisions. Many of you are rethinking major aspects of your life in this season. You are reprioritizing everything and you know that you have big decisions ahead of you. How are you going to make those decisions? Are there strategies that you have employed in the past and are they going to work for you now? To illustrate, let me introduce you to one of my favorite artists. I think that Chuck Close is on the short list of the most important living American artists. He's often overlooked on that list, but if you've seen a Close in person, it's, it's uh, like the one that's at the Art Institute in Chicago or my personal favorite, which is entitled Frank. It's, it's in Minneapolis. His work makes a big impression on people. He's a photorealist painter. He paints portraits. And throughout his illustrious career, he's created these large-scale portraits that are so lifelike, even when you're a few inches away from them, you can hardly tell that it's paint on canvas and you're almost convinced that it's a photograph. And this is by design. After his big breakthrough in 1968, he had a strategy, a method to create his masterpieces. He would grid out a photograph of a portrait of somebody, and then he would blow up that grid on a canvas, and he would airbrush each grid with a diluted acrylic paint, and then he would meticulously use scrapers and razors and electric erasers to move the paint around on that grid on the canvas so that it matched the photo. This strategy is painstakingly tedious. One painting would take him several months, but it worked. He became a notable painter, and his paintings were in high demand for decades. But everything changed in 1988 when Close's artery spontaneously collapsed and he was paralyzed from the waist down at the age of 48. He endured months of rigorous physical therapy, but he was resolved to try and paint again. As he began to get back some strength in his daily rehabilitations, Close was able to put his hands 
together slightly and clamp them around a paintbrush and then literally sort of let his arm fall on the canvas, hoping that the brush landed in the right place. This man, who had been doing the finest paintwork of anyone anywhere, was now essentially stabbing at a canvas. But he looked at what he created, even stabbing at this canvas, and said, it was good enough, and I knew that I was eventually going to paint again. And he did. He eventually had a a brace built for his wrist that would hold his paintbrush, and, and he would begin to find ways to produce portraits again. The goal was the same, but the old strategy that, ha- that he had didn't work anymore. He had to adapt. He began working instead with color fields, almost in the way that we think of pixels on a screen. He, he still used a grid system, but now it was airbrushed dots or even smudges that he would use his finger. He relearned how to paint, and he did so to the point where they did a retrospective in 2012 where they mixed in pre- and post-paralysis paintings and people couldn't even tell the difference. The, the one that's pictured right here is a portrait, a self-portrait from 2011. He's now 80 and he's still painting today. And he had this to say, quote, I just had to adapt. Painting saved me. Adaptability. Let's talk about that word and that principle. Because that's what we see in close, and and that's what I think we see in the Apostle Paul as well. We can have a strategy, a way of doing things that works well for us and is comfortable for us, but there is a limit to that. We are going to run into things in our life where our plans, our strategies, our ways of doing things, no matter how well thought out they are, they don't work. This can be when tragedy strikes. It can be when, when doors keep closing around us. It could be these these come-to-Jesus moments that many of us are in right now. Can you pivot? Can you adapt when that happens? Adaptability takes, takes faith, a trust in a future that you can't see. It takes conviction, a certitude of will and intent. It takes humility, the openness to say that there's another way than the one that I created or envisioned. I think... Paul models adaptability in exactly these ways. Deep faith, sure conviction, humble spirit. But it also takes something that compels you forward. Something to hope in. Without the hope of painting again, Chuck Close would have been a shell of a man. Without the hope of the spirits leading, the closed door that Paul experienced in Asia, Bithynia, could have made him question the entirety of his mission. But the leading of the Holy Spirit moved him on. He was adaptive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. On this Pentecost Sunday, it's appropriate, obviously, for us to speak about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost to the people of God, and it is the gift of God's very own Spirit, the Spirit that was alive in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's all the character and attributes of God the Father and the Son in the form of a spirit which is available to anyone, anywhere who welcomes God as their Lord and Jesus as King. The Spirit is an advocate, a leader, a guide, a helper, a comforter. When Paul says that the Spirit kept him out of this place or that place, 
I believe that the Holy Spirit closed doorways and spoke to Paul in prayer and, and gave him these holy nudges in various directions. He was seeking the leading of the Spirit, and the Spirit was faithful to speak to Paul, ultimately gifting him with this vision of the man of Macedonia, saying, Come, Europe needs this gospel. Come to us. We need the hope of Jesus. And Paul, because of the hope that he had in God's presence, with him through the Spirit, he listened and he responded. He adapted and he was obedient. His decisions were informed by strategy and training, but they hinged on the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So all that to say, I want you to think about a decision that you need to make right now or a decision that you know you're going to need to make in the near future. What's your process? Do you even have one? What hope do you have as you make that decision? Are you continuing to simply lean on your strategy? Are you adaptable? Do you believe that God has something to say about that decision through his spirit? I believe that this text is an invitation into a biblical model for decision making. So let me close with just three truths from this text that I think will be helpful for us. The first is this. The Spirit's leading does not eliminate strategy. I think often when we talk about being led by the Holy Spirit, we have this this vision of listening to the Holy Spirit, this image of someone who is not planning at all, not preparing, is just being sort of blown about by the wind. And and to be honest, I've met some, some charismatic Christians who act this way. I'll know what to do when the Spirit tells me what to do. Until then, I'm just going to sort of wait. But this is not what Paul models for us. It's not the true charismatic spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit, but he still employed the same well-thought-out strategy of choosing strategic cities and visiting synagogues first and making tents for a living so that he could build credibility with the people and employing common wisdom. You can be strategic and wise and thoughtful and plan ahead and still be led by the Holy Spirit. I would argue, in fact, that this is the model that Jesus teaches quite often. And that Paul, in turn, models for us. The second thing is, the more that we seek the Spirit, the more that we're going to recognize the Spirit. So if we live our lives seeking the Spirit's leading, asking for guidance and leading it, and saying, God, do you have anything to say about this decision? Do you have anything to say about what I should do or where I should go? then we create a culture of participation with the Spirit and can more easily recognize the Spirit's prompting the more that we do that. I think Paul and his fellow apostles were constantly seeking the Spirit together. They woke up saying, Spirit, guide me. They stopped regularly to ask, hey, does anyone have a sense of the Spirit's guidance in their life right now that they'd like to share? They opened themselves up to the Spirit's power. They humbled themselves. They asked for signs and visions and dreams. They created a culture in which the Spirit moves and they recognize. Leadership guru Peter Drucker famously quipped, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Some of you have heard that. He's not saying that strategy is unimportant, but that a powerful culture of shared values and shared hope is, w- is a way sure way to organizational success, in his words. Well, I, I want to assert the same spiritually, too. Strategy is great, but when we have developed a culture in which we recognize that the Spirit is speaking and we are actively listening, we are much more likely to make decisions that are godly and wise and fruitful and good. 
third one, and this is important, really important. Faithful, spirit-led decisions have the potential to change lives forever and even change the world. See, I believe that God honors spirit-led decisions in amazing ways. My in-laws decided to sell their house and use the money to move to Kenya for a year of medical missions when their girls, including my wife, was in grade school because their father-in-law felt the spirit nudging. He had his own man of Macedonia experience, and he decided to say yes. And it was a life changer for those three girls. And, and, and that legacy caused my wife to, to have a hope in her spirit, which led her to say yes to the Spirit's nudge early on in her life to adopt a daughter from China. And, and, and that not only changed her, but it changed my life. And, it, and I know it's a game changer for our boys as well. You see, because Paul humbled himself and put aside his plans and was adaptable and said yes, he brought the gospel to Europe for the very first time. He visited the city of Thessalonica. He planted a church. He began writing letters to that church when he was separated prematurely from them. And those letters would become the very first epistles that were, that were written and they would become a new strategy for Paul to encourage and correct and come around these churches and, and, and those letters would be canonized in Scripture. And then 2,000 years later, a church in Hinsdale would study them and be blessed by them while they were separated from one another. All because Paul said yes to the man of Macedonia that the Spirit showed him. And, and, and he blessed that obedience. He changed lives and he changed the world through the power of of the Spirit. And when we follow the Spirit, we have the potential to change generations of lives to come. Our children and their children and their children. So this morning, I'll invite you to begin this Thessalonian journey in the same way as Paul. We've got a summer ahead of us. How will we make decisions? Big and small. Will we live by the Spirit? Will we take the mind and will that God has given us and create great faithful strategies and then create a Spirit-led culture in our lives that says, this is the best I have, God. Now, you lead, you guide, you direct me. Will we wait in anticipation for visions and then faithfully follow them? I pray to God that we will. And may God work through his spirit in a way that blesses the world and changes lives for Jesus. May it be so. Amen and amen.